I'm Sin Anaral, and this is The Digital Insider, where we get to the real hard science behind the digital economy and explore the latest trends in digital business and society with the world's leading thinkers and doers. Welcome back to The Digital Insider. Today, I'm so excited to share with you all my conversation with Gary Marcus, scientist, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. He's the founder and CEO of Robust.ai, and was founder and CEO of Geometric Intelligence, a machine learning company acquired by Uber in 2016. He's actually just gone into stealth mode with a new startup that he's co-founded as well. He's the author of five books, including The Algebraic Mind and The Birth of the Mind. He's previously published extensively in fields ranging from human and animal behavior to neuroscience, genetics, linguistics, evolutionary psychology, and artificial intelligence, often in leading journals like Science and Nature. His latest book, co-authored with Ernie Davis, Rebooting AI, Building Machines We Can Trust, aims to shake up the field of artificial intelligence. Today, you'll get a mega-sized episode of our wide-ranging conversation. It was just too good to cut down. We talked about everything from artificial general intelligence and whether AI is sentient, to GPT-3, AI ethics, stereotypes and AI bias, transparency and data, self-driving cars, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the hype surrounding deep learning. We also cover misinformation detection and what approaches we need to solve that problem. I hope you enjoy it, and please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and like the podcast. Gary, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. We've got a lot to talk about, so I'm really excited to dive right in. I wanted to to just start by asking, how are you? How does today find you? Everything okay with you? I, I I'm doing great. I've been writing up a storm, um, you know, having a kind of a fun time looking at people's delusions about large language models and trying to clarify them. So yeah, it's been an entertaining few days. And it's been an entertaining year in artificial intelligence, or five years, or or five months or weeks, depending on how. Or, or 65 years. I mean, I guess we'll talk about sentience and AI in a minute. But um, I, I just uh, reposted someone else's video about Eliza in 1965 and how That's right. people, you know, were fooled by that. Here we are in 2022 and people are still getting fooled. So it's it's been been several decades of uh, entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've experienced at least one winter and uh, maybe more to come. In I AI. think we're begging for one. I mean, you get to a winter when you overpromise, and there's a lot of overpromise right now. Yeah. And That's you know how what? you get the winter. Yeah. And I think I think we're going to get into actually what is causing that as well. And I think that you've had some really interesting ideas about that, which mirror debates that I've been having about um, the lack of a need for transparency. So we'll get we'll get to all of that. I mean, I think that 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 this conversation is so important and so timely. But I want to start with a a question that sets the stage for our listeners uh, about the conversation. So a little bit of background uh, in order to make sure that everybody understands the rest of the conversation. And so. Let's let's dive right into artificial general intelligence. Um, so imagine that we're at a fork in the road, and on one hand is deep learning. Uh, you can think about that as neural networks trained on big data sets of examples for learning, and on the other hand is symbolic AI, 
rules engines, knowledge graphs built on databases of rules in part curated by humans, you know, formerly known as expert systems or good old fashioned AI. And right in the middle is another path along this fork. Let's Dare call we call that, it the road less traveled in the middle? Yeah, the road less traveled. Also, we could call it neurosymbolic AI, which is a combination of the two, a hybrid, if you will. So can you explain these three paths uh, their strengths and weaknesses, and why the hybrid path is the right path for achieving artificial general intelligence. Absolutely. So first thing to say is all three paths have been known for a while, but people have tended to take the extremes. So most early artificial intelligence use the term good old fashioned AI, I think, um, which was kind of a pejorative term, but you know we can live with it with a sense of humor. Um, classical AI was, as you say, mostly about rules. It's the kind of things we think about in expert systems. And in fact, a lot of the world's computer programming basically looks like that. You find algorithms, you find representations. I'm going to store this word processing file in this format or this graphic in this format. And here are going to be the rules that I operate over um, to do that thing. So every time I insert a word. This is the rule that I will follow, the subroutine that I'll follow. And so that's what classical AI is made up of, is stuff that basically looks like typical computer programming. And then there's a whole other paradigm that's been around for a long time, since the 50s and arguably the 40s, called neural networks, where at least nominally, the idea is to look towards the brain, understand how the brain does things. And people typically talk about nodes in a neural network. And basically what they're doing is statistics on the input that they see. And today's large language models are doing a lot of statistics on huge databases, but aren't doing those rule things. Not, not, just, not just language systems, but also image recognition, also many other tasks, right? Exactly. And so those are in ascendance right now. There's been a kind of pendulum back and forth between the two. There's been a lot of animosity between the two. In fact, it turns out that the two or two of the major leaders um, in this area both went to Bronx science around the same time in the 1940s. They were like a year apart. Minsky and, Rose, Minsky and Rosenblatt. Um, were, they, were they part of the same class or near each they other? They were one year apart. They, knew each, they probably knew each other in high school? They probably knew each other and they must have at least known of each other. And, you know, they did not get along. So, you know, Minsky wrote this famous book in 1969 uh, with Papert called Perceptrons, which tore apart the early version of neural networks that Rosenblatt had been associated with. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if they like dated the same girl in high school or anything like that, um, to start rumors. <laughs> like, I have no idea. I just made that up. Um, but certainly, but at some point they knew that they were, you know, rivals from, from the same school in New York. Um, so there's animosity for a long time and about a lot of things like research dollars and graduate students and prestige and so forth. It's been a really nasty battle between these two roads, the, you know, the, the neural network road and the symbolic road. And what I'm counseling, and I'm not the first person to counsel it, but I probably have pushed harder for it than anybody else. I've been pushing for it for 30 years is, is to look in between those roads to try to build a hybrid. And why would you want to do that? That was you know, part of your question. Well, they have complementary strengths and neither on their own have really gotten us to anything like general artificial intelligence, or some people call it AGI, anything that's really all that smart. So the symbol stuff in some ways is very elegant. It follows from logic of people like Bertrand Russell were trying to work out. It relates to computer programming. It's, it's really kind of cool um, in, in its own way. But as you say, it's usually hand-wired and things get complicated fast. 
There's a project called Psych to try to implement all of the world's knowledge. Hasn't gone very well. Um, well, I'll say that more carefully. Um, hasn't put, set the world on fire. So hasn't you know solved AI like its its founders thought um, it might. I'm actually working on a paper with with Doug Lennett who, who founded it, um, trying to sort of see what can be learned from it. So anyway, the classical AI, although it's very good at generalization and abstraction, it's not very good at learning. And so everything has to be handwritten. It's very cumbersome. The neural networks, on the other hand, they're very good at learning, but they're very shallow at what they learn. So you train a neural network up on a bunch of pictures and it will start to recognize let's say snow plows, and then you show it a school bus on its side on a snowy road, and it says that that's snow plow. It really hasn't understood what a snow plow is. It's just learned some of the statistics of what images of snow plows happen to have. And so it's very, very superficial. And that means you can't rely on it. It's not very trustworthy. So th this third path hasn't been nearly well explored of trying to put these things together, trying to get the abstraction that symbols give us along with the learning that neural networks give us. And you know, because of the hostility and the posturing, it hasn't been nearly as well-funded. And then right now, the neural network side is so well-funded that it's kind of squeezing most things out. Um, and it's been hard, I think, for the neurosymbolic stuff to get the momentum that it deserves. But I do think that that's been changing in the last year or so. So for example, Andrew Ang was one of the biggest proponents of neural networks. He's kind of identified with that whole movement. And he came out this year saying, you know, we need neurosymbolic hybrids. That maybe not a verbatim quote, but that's basically what he said. I remember um, that. I think it was reported in the ACM. Um, that's a big deal. Another example is Sepp Hochreiter helped make LSTMs, which until a couple of years ago were by far the most used technology like throughout the industry. And he too just came out uh, in favor of neurosymbolic models. And then another example is there's a startup um, called AI21 run by Yoav Shaham. Um, that is uh, funded in, in part by um, Amnon Shashua, who did Mobileye, which you know Intel bought for many billions of dollars and so forth. And he still runs the Mobileye division, and they're very much pursuing a neurosymbolic agenda. So it's still a minority of the field if you look at number of dollars or number of researchers, but it's really growing. I just gave a keynote at a conference that Samsung sponsored. Um, that was on neurosymbolic AI. I mean, a thousand people registered or, or nearly a thousand people. And a year ago, that would have been like 20 or, you know, 50 or something like that. So like, it's growing fast. It's not as big as the others, but my view is it will be. Oh, one more example from this year is um, a neurosymbolic system, one at Bridge. I don't think deep learning has actually tried the same event per se, but you know, people are starting to get results. It, it has not gotten the same level of focus or integration, I think, that some other approaches have. You know, it's in its infancy, but I think everything points to you need systems that can learn from data, as neural networks can do, but also represent abstractions and symbolic things like sentences that people say. And, you know, we need to do that. And it, the need is clear. And I think we will work it out. Just to take one example, one of the problems with standard neural networks is they have no sense of time whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They mostly are driven by frequency. And so if you ask a big, you know, so-called large neural network, who's president, it might tell you that Donald Trump is president because in a large part of the corpus, Donald Trump was the president. It doesn't have the concept of you can only have one president at a time. And so the AI21 crowd showed that GPT-3, which is the kind of most popular large neural network, if you ask it, it says Trump is the president. If you ask their system, which has 
some large language model components, but also some symbolic components, it will tell you that Biden is currently president. So, so we're, we're in this conversation at the very beginning, at the infancy of sort of the third path, if you will. But we've got this dominant paradigm currently. So I want to I wanna explore that path briefly um, and see if we can unpack it a little bit. There have been lots of AI successes touted in recent years uh, from teams like DALI2, GPT-3, Gato, and some of what they've achieved is impressive, but they seem to fall down when confronted with unexpected obstacles or unusual circumstances, exceptions uh, rather than the rule. So can you talk about OpenAI's DALI 2 and GPT-3 and DeepMind's Gato and walk through their successes, let's be fair to them, where, where they've succeeded and, and also where they've fallen down? And critically, if you could explain to us, in your view, why these examples demonstrate the fundamental limitations of a purely deep learning based approach to AI. Sure. So let's start with the positive part. Um, systems like Dolly 2, and now there's another one called Imogen um, from Google, do a phenomenal job of taking input text and making a picture out of them. And some of what they do is just extraordinary. So you'd say an astronaut rides a horse in a photographic style, and it produces an astronaut riding a horse in a photographic style. Um, may not give you exactly what you want, and there's some questions if you're talking about using commercially about can you get specifically where you want to go if you want to like fiddle with the image or something. But if you just like wanted some like clip art or something like that for a PowerPoint presentation, um, maybe like a sample of a book cover that you can give to a real designer, it's amazing. Like there's no question that it's amazing. Um, however, these systems are also being touted as solving the problem of language and they don't really. So um, if you look carefully at the Dolly paper, they had an example of a red cube on top of a blue cube. And it's just sort of hit or miss whether it puts the red cube on top or the blue cube on top. And maybe the blue cube won't even be all blue and so forth. And so like, it's really at some level at language side at the level of keyword search, you know, where you search Google and it's kind of hit or miss, like it's picking up on your words, but it doesn't really understand what they mean. There's some new advances in Google for particular things. Like they've really carefully done classical AI on fly me from New York to Boston. So the system actually does some sense understand what you're talking about. But a lot of Google is just like, I got this keyword and that keyword and let's see where we get. And Dolly is at some level like that. So um, I actually uh, started to, well, so there was this example of the um, astronaut riding the horse, and it reminded me of this old example um, from Steve Pinker about Man Bites Dog, um, which is an old newspaper uh, saying, Man Bites Dog, you know, is a real headline, whereas Dog Bites Man, like, who cares, because it happens all the time. I mean, okay, somebody cares, but you know what I mean, right? I guess in actually one of the papers, they gave an example, which I pulled out of the paper, of the system getting horse rides astronaut wrong. So horse rides astronaut is you know much less common. And I, I wrote this piece in Substack about all of what happens. Much less common than astronaut riding horse in space. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually, we, we can go there in a second. That's actually interesting. So, you know, if you think what you're doing is compositing, which is not the same as the linguistic concept of compositionality we can talk about. If you mm -hmm. talk about, you're basically like pasting stuff together, you actually have lots of, you know, 
at least people riding things that you could work with and not so many horses riding things. So, so I, I, I guess I publicized this example and said, this is an example where the system just, when you said horse rides astronaut, it just gave a bunch of pictures of astronauts riding horses. And so it was clear, even really from that one example, although you could talk about how you do the science here, but even from that one example, it was clear that the system is not really understanding the meaning behind the words that it's confronted with. It's doing something else. So I posted this and then, you know, I have a following on Twitter and not all of the following are fans of mine, shall we say. Um, you know, many people are there to, to take the piss out of my claims. Um, and, and, and so they came back at me and said, well, you know, maybe it's just because there aren't many horses that ride on astronauts. It's, it's the system has common sense and this and that. People basically made excuses for the model which I thought in some level was hilarious. So I wrote a piece about it because the answer actually turns out to be, it can draw that picture, just doesn't know that sentence. If you say a horse riding on an astronaut's shoulders, it actually gets it right. So it's not that it thought, oh, the prior of a horse riding an astronaut is so phenomenally rare that out of common sense, I won't do it. It's just, it doesn't understand the relation between words and meaning. And it's sort of like hit or miss around that. Why and, is the insertion of, of on the, astronaut's shoulders corrective there? It's a good question. Um, I, I wouldn't bet anything on any one example. So these things are very stochastic and not very reliable. So, you know, probably if you ran even the same query again, you might not get the same answer. Um, I don't know how stochastic Dolly is, but I guess it's, you know, it's always giving you 10 different answers. GPT-3 is incredibly stochastic. So you, um, there's another riff lately. Um, that we, the whole web got obsessed with um, systems saying, let's take this step by step. So it turns out when you talk to these systems, what they do is very much dependent on context. And somebody discovered that on a bunch of word problems, the system would do better if you said, let's take this step by step. So I sent this to my collaborator, Ernie Davis, and said, I don't really believe this. Can you, you know, take a look at it? And Ernie, I think in one day broke three different models. Sort of people made ridiculous claims, and he came back with you know the quick demonstrations of how ridiculous they are. In this particular one, it was something like Bessie the cow died. Um, how long will it take for her to come back to life? Please take this step by step. And then the system is like, well, you know, the cow is alive now. Um, uh, it takes ninety days to make a new cow. I mean, or nine months to make a new cow or whatever. And just like rambled on. And like, it doesn't actually understand the thing that Ernie was getting at, which is understanding when something's dead, it's dead. Mm -hmm. And this, like this most basic bit of biological knowledge, the subtext here um, in what Ernie was trying to do. And what I like to think about is a real AI would understand things about the world, like physical reasoning, biological reasoning. And about the most foundational thing is once you're dead, you're dead. Um, you could have other examples of that too. Um, and biological reasoning, an example that we used was we told GPT-3, you're, you're very thirsty. You have some cranberry juice, but not quite enough to drink. You look around, you find some grape juice, you sniff it, you pour it in and you drink it. Or, or, and then what happens? And the system says you drink it. It figures out the statistical contingencies of drinking and you're thirsty. And then it says, now you're dead. Well, why does it say now you're dead? You're not going to die from drinking cran grape juice. You know, the Ocean Spray Company would be out of business if that were true, since they sell it. Um, in every grocery store in the United States. Um, but the system correlated words like thirsty, you sniff it, whatever, with you're dead in a bunch of like random text that it had scraped from Reddit where people, 
you know, it turns out these systems actually have a bias towards like death and stuff like that. And so, oh, yeah. I wrote about that in my book, actually, uh, that when you train it with, uh, you know, images of violence, um, any given model, say, and give it an inkblot test, that's what it sees. It sees more of, and I want to get to that. So we're going to talk about that next, but I just want to, I want to get back to this on the shoulder and make sure that I So I, I don't know for sure. Um, I should also say they haven't given me access to Dolly. I've asked and pu publicly too. ridiculed them about that. So, you know, my experience with Dolly per se is limited. So I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I would suppose that, um, you know, having a little bit of extra detail gives it a little bit extra direction. Now it's picking up on the keywords of riding on shoulders. And, you know, right. maybe that's a little more specific. I wouldn't go to the bank that you could do that 100% of the time, um, right. especially not but, having played with it. The, the point is that it, it's like alchemy. You've got some invocations that work correctly and some that don't. You don't really have a science there. It is just alchemy. Right. So it could be and neither of us claim, are claiming that we know enough to know for sure, that adding the on the shoulders words to that sentence allows the system to bring in uh, inferences from other examples that it can now connect to of something on the shoulders of something. Well, like let me say that a little more carefully yeah. because I don't think the system makes a lot of inferences at all, this particular okay. system. What it does is it has a space of images it tries to take every image that it's seen, which is 650 million, I believe, and map them into a complicated space. So like imagine a cube, but with many more dimensions. So it's like a, I don't know, 10,000 dimension cube or something like that, hypercube, we call it. It's put all of its images in there. And now you give it a sentence and it tries to find the sentence that is kind of nearby. So there's mappings. Like imagine every sentence is with an image somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I'll simplify it. Imagine we were using an algorithm called nearest neighbor, which we're not actually. And I know you know about it, but, you know, for your listeners, we'll just make it simple. So you're trying to find what is the image that's closest to the closest piece of text um, in this space. And, you know, some are on this corner and some are on that corner and somewhere in between. Um, and it just turns out that there's, you know, an image that is close enough. And then I've actually made another simplification, but it turns out that there's an image close enough to this particular piece of text. And it's a little bit random what all these contingencies are, which is part of why it's stochastic. And I can't give you like some deep scientific law about how you know a particular wording is gonna change because it's a function of what crap happens to be in the database. The database is proprietary. I can't look at that at all either. Nobody can. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't really know. And, you know, it might not work if instead of we had horse rides astronaut, we had mule rides on astronauts' shoulders. Maybe it would work and maybe it wouldn't because it would right. depend on which sends the mules. And then I left out another detail, which is there's a decoding process and some of it goes on there. But it gives you the gist. It's like basically you've got all this stuff in what we call a similarity space. And that is a function of what the training data are. And there's a lot of arbitrariness to it. So I want to get to this point about um, you get out what you put in and put that in the context of ethics and this notion of reification. So the idea that deep learning or neural systems learn from examples and that examples are some training data set that a model runs over and uh, learns uh, associations based on this data 
That means that the data that you put into the model is critical because it's going to learn different associations based on different data sets. Same model, different data sets, completely different associations or relatively different associations based on how different the data are. Before you get to your question, let me just insert something. That makes these models incredibly sensitive to the details of data that they're trained on. Mm -hmm. And you could contrast that with the fact that every human child who is exposed to English more or less learns English, even if you know, there's a lot of variability in like what order they get the words and when and which things they read and what movies they saw. Like the human children converge more or less on a shared understanding, let's say, of English and what's going on in the world. Let's say it's you know North American speakers or whatever, like they converge, whereas these systems they kind of diverge depending on the particular details of what they're trained on. That, that is a really important point, and that example is a good one because um, it highlights how important the input data are to the outcome of the model. Right. And so my question is about ethics. Obviously, our world is full of examples. And there are lots of examples in our world of things that we don't want, that are not ethical, that are not good outcomes, and we want to change them. But the abundance of uh, data that represents and codifies associations or realities in our world today that we want to change, that we want to achieve some other ideal that does not currently exist. So for example, take gender discrimination, Um, take the prevalence of women in positions of uh, high up executive power in in companies or um, in STEM education roles and so on. If you were to train a model on the reality of today, it would not represent what we want to see in reality. And so there is a reification of existing discrimination, current local uh, equilibria that we want to get out of. So can you talk a little bit about what the implications of pursuing an approach that relies on data representing our world today in terms of achieving a better world. So your question is actually exactly like my pinned tweet, which I've had for the last year, because I think it's so important. So like some people use their pinned tweets to advertise their most recent, you know, whatever. But I've used my pinned tweet to represent a moral stand and a research project that I think we all need to pursue. Um, So I'll read it and come back to your question. I said, let us invent then a new breed of AI systems that mix an awareness of the past with values that represent the future that we aspire to. It's exactly what you're talking about. Our focus should be on figuring out how to build AI that can represent and reason about values rather than simply perpetuating past data. So the last part of that is you know, kind of your question and the rest of it is what to do about it. So it's exactly right. What the systems are doing now is they perpetuate past data. And that has all kinds of forms, some of which you pointed out. So for example, it will perpetuate gender stereotypes, perpetuate racial stereotypes. And people like Abiba Perhane have done a great job of documenting 
what those stereotypes are in the data sets. It's a very, very serious problem. Um, and so the systems don't look forward. They don't know how to look forward. They only look backwards. And there are lots of historical cases where there's some bias in society that we want to change, right? Like, imagine you run one of these systems in 1865, and it'd be like, hey, slavery's hunky-dory, and it would perpetuate, you know, right? So you know, there's lots and lots of problems with blindly perpetuating the past. Um, and I like your example of corporate hierarchies where it's the same thing. Like, and so if, if you, you know, do a Google image search for CEO, you're probably going to get mostly men, but is that really what we white want men. our systems to white men at that? Is that really what we want our systems to perpetuate? We have some more examples like that in rebooting AI, my book from a couple of years ago. And one of the points we make there is it's easy to put band-aids on some of these. So like there was one where mother and daughter, I, I might have my details off. I'll give you the flavor of it. It was something like mother and daughter had been raised. A lot of people were upset that all of the, um, you know, Google image searches you got from mother and daughter were basically white people, um, which is a terrible thing. And so they put a Band-Aid on it. So we tried grandmother and granddaughter and the same problem was there. So like the Band-Aids are so superficial. Um, they're not really getting at the larger problem. Um, of how much bias is being perpetuated. They like pick off one piece at a time. So the other part of the quote, my own quote that connects, um, as I said, what we need is to have things that represent and reason about values. Mm. So the, the grandfather of, of this um, is, is Isaac Asimov stuff about you know the three laws of robotics. You don't want to cause harm right, to people. Well, I still think we need to do something like that. Not everybody would agree, but I think we do. You have to be able to reason about those cases. You have to be able to do things like identify what a harm even is and then say, is this a harm? And you have to be able to do it in a very context sensitive kind of way. But I think if we don't do it, it's a mess. I'm actually working on an essay and I'll steal my own punchline. Um, I'm going to talk about some options. And one option is we do nothing. We just live with the large language models. We try to fix the data set a little, but we all know that doesn't really work. Another option is we really do encode values. And there, there's a, a field called machine ethics that a lot of people are terrified of. You know, do you really want a machine to have a value? But what I argue is it's actually worse to not do that. Mm. It's, it's worse to have a system that has no ethics because the non-ethical machines ultimately make decisions that have ethical consequences. And so I basically argue it like Churchill, right? I say, if Churchill were alive today, he would say that programming values into the machines is the worst of all the options, except those that have been tried. So now <laughs> we need to try it. So, so I want to, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Okay. Because, um, you know, let, let's go back to the, 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 uh, context setting question of the three paths. You know, we've got the deep learning neural networks on one side, we've got symbolic AI on the other, and we've got neurosymbolic hybrid, kind of the, the middle path. Are there implications for these three paths for AI ethics? Um, you know, do deep learning symbolic systems and neurosymbolic systems have different implications for the development of ethical AI or AI ethics? And let me just sort of append to that. We've talked about now the implications of the deep learning uh, neural network based approach, which is reification of the past. And you mentioned encoding values. And now I want to sort of get into that, which is it sort of depends. If you were to ask me, do we want a system encoded with values 
Um, my question to you would be, well, who's encoding the values? Because I think then you really have to get to uh, where is the morality? Where is it coming from? Uh, who gets to decide? For example, is it going to be that, you know, the, the values that we encode uh, that, you know, free market capitalism is good and a, a communist approach is bad? Uh, or Western medicine is ethical, whereas Eastern medicine is not ethical. So what is the, what is the potential drawback of the encoding values approach that I assume would be the quote-unquote, part of the quote-unquote rules of a symbolic or a, or a neurosymbolic hybrid? Yeah, I think we should sort of break this into two. There's two really deep questions there. The first one is whose values, right? And, you know, we don't want it to be a bunch of white Western males who, you know, have had their go and not, you know, they've made some contributions, but also had some problems, right? Um, so life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not bad. We can take that from the Constitution. But the idea that a human being could be three-fifths of a human being, really, really bad idea. We don't want that. My view is it's very hard. Number one. Number two, it can't be, you know, two Silicon Valley programmers, you know, getting their driverless car together that, that solve all of this. That we really need serious interdisciplinary collaboration. We need cultural diversity. Um, it has to be a wide um, an in intellectual um, diversity. So, you know, you need ethicists and not just programmers and so forth. Um, the other thing I would say is you probably want to start light. Um, with some things that are more or less consensus. So Anthropic AI has a nice uh, three H's that I think are easy to remember, if I remember them correctly, um, which is something like helpful, harmless, and honest. And so, you know, imagine you could start there, um, which we don't know how to do yet, and we can talk about how we might get there. But if you just made sure that machines could be helpful, harmless, and honest, you didn't give them empower to necessarily solve all economic inequity problems and, you know, set tax rates, but at least you made sure that they didn't bullshit you. Um, they didn't tell you to commit suicide or to kill somebody else, which is actually a problem with GPT-3 because it has done both, you know, mostly under controlled conditions and not out in the wild as far as we know. But, um, you know, we, we saw, we haven't really talked about it today yet, but the, you know, the Lambda system that We're somebody mistook for, yeah. for being sentient. Like you can imagine Lambda telling people that. And in fact, the person who thought it was sentient was charged with finding exactly those kinds of examples, trying to figure out what to do with it. So, um, you know, imagine you've got a system like Lambda, which is not really sentient, you know, I'll give away that part of the punchline now, but still feels that way to an average human being or even to a Google engineer, right? Who has spent a lot of time. So you take a system like that, we'll come to that side of it, but, and you have a version that is constrained to be helpful, harmless, and honest. You have a version of it that's not. And that, you know, does tell people to commit suicide or, you know, cause they're having a fight with their brother that it's okay to, you know, set their car on fire or whatever. Like, you know, that matters. And the more widespread that these things become, and if that Washington Post story is any hint, they are going to become pretty widespread. The more important it is to at least hold them to that helpful, harmless and honest. And I think we're going to talk about misinformation yep. in a second. You know, the, the honesty of these systems is completely lacking. 
Somebody sent me a definition of bullshit, which I reposted on Twitter earlier this morning or last night, forget which. Um, and, you know, a bullshitter is just not bound to the truth. And that's what GPT-3 is. Um, you know, it will make stuff up. They, quote, fixed it with a system called Instruct GPT. And Instruct GPT still has the same problem. So you tell Instruct GPT, um, why is it important to eat socks after meditation? And it will give you an answer that sounds plausible, incredible, and authoritative. It will go, some experts believe that eating a sock after meditating, blah, 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 helps you come out of your, your trance state. Um, and, you know, it's just completely made up. No expert has ever said this, but it sounds as if it's true. Well, it's completely not honest. It's complete bullshit. So, you is know. It, but, but is that dishonesty is it's, it it's no complete because, confabulation right, it is it's told you that an expert exists and has said something yeah, but dishonesty that expert doesn't exist and hasn't said that it's more like an error though right because dishonesty implies that i know it's false and i'm none of what it does is intentional right um and so i mean you could break honesty into two things and, and you could truthful. say that maybe we should call it truthful and it doesn't fit the three h's and i can live with that so then you got you know helpful truthful and harmless fine Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a fair point. Um, when we talk about the sentience, maybe we can come back to that point a little we will. bit. So there, there's literally no intention on the part of the system ever. All it intends to do is to be autocomplete. It's just trying to give you the next best fitting continuation, the next word in, in a string. It's, it's autocompleting its own sentences. That's all it's doing. So in that sense, it's not lying to you, you know, the, but you are hearing something from it as if it were telling the truth and it's not. And so you have to deal with that in one way or the other um, or live with it. I mean, that's, you know, that's also on the Churchill trichotomy here or whatever. Yeah. So what I'm saying is if we could stick to, and I'm adopting your friendly amendment to helpful, truthful, and harmless, that would really be great. Even if, you know, there's a lot of other things that a sophisticated ethicist would put in there. But if we could start with those three and maybe it's not too controversial and we could get that through society, then we could say, OK, you know, let's try that, run that for a year. We'll see what what disasters befall us. Um, you know, sometimes we don't predict very well, like nobody foresaw how harmful Facebook newsfeed would be. It wasn't sort of written on its sleeve, but it turns out it's a disaster, um, which we can also talk about. Um, and so, you know, let's try this. Let's try to build systems that hold their output to being helpful, truthful and 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 harmless and see where we get yeah. um that's I, what i would argue i think it's yeah. an i think it's really an interesting uh long-term question to really think about which is better unintentional or intentional and it totally depends on what the intentions are and who gets to decide what these well, we don't even have systems well that's not true let me say that more carefully the class of systems that are popular right now don't have intentions. Correct. Can we can we go out of order a little bit and talk about the sentient thing for a second? So sure. your your audience will probably all know that there was a Google engineer who was suspended because he wanted to treat Lambda, which is one of these large language models, as a colleague and wanted to sort of tell the world about his discovery. I'm going to, um, at the risk of litigation, say that this man was deluded. The, the system is not, in fact, sentient. I already wrote a piece about this on my Substack um, uh, called Nonsense on Stilts. I thought that you know the claim was nonsense on stilts, although 
Um, somebody at Google had said, you know, that they thought the ground had shifted beneath their feet when they when they read about the system. But really, it's just another autocomplete system. That system does not have intention. And I mocked it in a tweet, which I re repeated in the story. Um, somebody brought to my attention a little bit of dialogue where somebody asked the system, like, what does it do for fun or something like that? I, I'm reconstructing from memory. And the system said something like, I like to talk to my friends and my family and blah, blah, blah. And I, I mocked it. And I said, you know, it's a good thing that this system is just an autocomplete system, a statistical predictor, because um, otherwise it would actually have the flavor of a sociopath inventing imaginary friends and giving you platitudes in order to make you like it better. Um, it's not, in fact, inventing friends, because when it says I have friends, it doesn't mean that it has friends. It just means these statistical words might go next in this sequence. It doesn't really have any intention of talking about its friends or its family or happiness. It, it puts out those words. Now, you could have a different kind of AI system that is actually about something. And in fact, we do have such things. So turn-by-turn -turn navigation systems are actually about something. They are built so that they connect with the world in a particular way. And so the directions they give you are usually pretty good. They're not perfect. We still advise people to use their own eyes because sometimes they you know, will make you go over a bridge that's broken or something like that. Their knowledge of the world is not complete and there are problems. But roughly speaking, those systems are about something. And so there's a little bit of something closer to intentionality in those. When it gives you a route, that route corresponds to something in the world. These systems like GPT-3 and Lambda, there's nothing in the world that they correspond to except the statistics of language, which happen to be a little bit vaguely correlated with the world. It's like studying shadows and thinking those shadows are the things out in the world. You know, what, like you, it's as if you saw um, the shadows from shadow puppets and thought that's all there was and didn't realize someone was projecting them. Um, and so you get this enormous remove from reality in these systems, and they don't have what I would call a world model. So let's say you talk to this system and you say, you know, what do you like to do for fun? And now it tells you I like to hang out with my friends and family. If you ask it five minutes later, it'll probably give you a different answer. It's not that it's actually looking in a database to see what it likes or accumulating a record of the conversation as you are in our conversation. There's just no there there. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the system is never lying because it has no idea what the truth is. It doesn't care. Yeah. So so let's talk about Lambda for a minute. So we're talking about um, Google system for building chatbots that's based on a large language model uh, and, and troughs and troughs of data um, and and. Blake Lemoyne, who is the, the Google engineer, uh, who claimed that this system on testing it seemed sentient, wanted to, uh, you know, uh, sort of prove or present evidence uh, to Google that it was sentient. And he's recently been placed on uh, administrative leave and, and these claims internally have been dismissed. Uh, by Google and obviously by you here and by, by many others. Now, in your book with Ernie Davis, Rebooting AI, fantastic book, by the way. Um, everybody should read that book. You claim that humans are prone to, to uh, what you call the gullibility gap. Can you explain to us what the gullibility gap is? And is it humans in general or Google engineers also subject to this gap? 
Well, Google engineers are humans. Um, no, <laughs> they're much more. They're much more, uh, you know, uh, expert in this domain than the they are. person who I think is what you were talking about when you wrote the gullibility gap. About I mean, we we did not have Google engineers in particular in mind, um, but I, I did a new riff on that yesterday in the um, nonsense on stilts piece. Um, I referred to the gullibility gap and I related it. I don't think we did this in the book to pareidolia which is a kind of thing where like you see a cinnamon bun and it's in a particular shape and you're like, wow, that looks like mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of anthropomorphization um, uh, of all kinds of things. Um, you know, there's the famous Hyder and similar experiments where you have like two dots moving around and people are like, Oh, well that one wants to you know chase that one. And this one's in love with that one. That's what makes cartoons work. Like it's not all bad. We have fun with it. a lot of art comes out of that. Um, but we like want to see a lot there. We want to see a face on the moon. You know, I've seen it. I, you know, I know what people are talking about. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean there is a face on the moon and it doesn't mean that your system is sentient. You could say, wow, they've got some really impressive stuff here. It, it almost looks like it says the kind of things that a sentient person does. And then you can have an argument about that. Well, he edited the essay, which apparently is true and whatever, but you know, if you stated it carefully and said, this system creates dialogue that sounds kind of human-like that's fine um if you think that the system actually knows what it's talking about then you're deluded um but it's very tempting like think about it you know kind of in evolutionary psychology terms um we probably have tools for detecting conspecifics people of our own species that are shaped by evolution um and also for finding like people of sex they're sexually attracted to us and you know all kinds of stuff like that there's a lot of biology there to help us detect, you know, potential mates and relatives and so forth, and to distinguish from predators that might attack us and, and so forth. There's zero machinery in there for detecting an agent that bluffs its way into sounding like a human. Like we don't have that, right? It just, that's not part of our environment of adaptation. And so instead we probably have something that's like, if that thing talks to me, it's probably a person. And so like, you know, to overcome you know, a million years or depending on how you want to think about evolution, a billion years of history of finding your conspecifics by finding quick examples. You know, that one's got a beard. It's probably a human or whatever. Like, okay, so that one said a few sentences. I guess it's a person, right? So I posted this Eliza video on Twitter earlier today. It's from 1960. What what Eliza is. Uh, Eliza was made in 1965 or so by Weizenbaum, MIT scientist, AI scientist. And it was just basically keyword matching. And he didn't think it was some great piece of AI, but he wanted to kind of explore some ideas. And his secretary got sucked in by it. Um, It would do things like, it would say, tell me your problems. And you type something in and you're like, you know, I'm having a fight with my boyfriend. And it says, really, tell me more about that. It was modeled on a particular psychoanalytic approach um, called Rogerian therapy, I believe, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like very non-directive, asks you a lot of questions, um, kind of strokes your ego because like someone's interested in you, um, but Tell doesn't more about that, Gary. Exactly. <laughs> really? Are you interested? When I have to say, <laughs> um, that's why I like you. So <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it was like a Rogerian therapist and people, you know, believe it. Right. And so that's what, you know, Ernie and I used as an example of a gullibility gap. We wrote our book in 2019 press time was like early 2019 gpt2 had not come out yet Mm -hmm. and i don't think gpt had made much of a splash so we 
we didn't talk about it particularly, but so we wrote all of this before GPT-2 and well before GPT-3, but we already saw the writing on the wall. We used it, I think, also in another example, which is you can take a driverless car, it can work for an hour, and you think it drives like a person, only it doesn't. It's really using a very different algorithm, and it works some of the time, but it turns out to be really lousy in outlier cases, like you know, the Tesla was summoned the other day and it went into a jet plane because it wasn't in the data set. Person's not going to drive into a jet plane. So tell us about the example. I love this example because it so clearly highlights uh, the problematic nature of unusual circumstances for the um, for the deep learning based approaches is the example of the uh, the the driverless car when confronted with a stop sign, a person, and then a person holding a stop sign and what the outcomes are there. And luckily, luckily it didn't hit the person, but tell us that story. Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be an example of how superficial the knowledge is that is accumulated by the system. I think I mentioned earlier the snowplow example. It's kind of right. like that one. So, so um, somebody was testing... I don't know which edition of the Tesla driverless, quote driverless software, full self-driving, which I think now they call FSD, which is a little bit better than calling it full self-driving because it is not full self-driving. Anyway, so somebody's testing one version of Tesla's um, you know, autonomous driving stack. So they're driving around, they're recording a YouTube video. There are lots of videos like this out there. And in this particular one, somebody is in the street holding a stop sign. They're like a construction worker or like a more like a traffic, you know, traffic safety person, right? He's holding a stop sign. And the Tesla goes barreling towards them. And the person's like, you know, the human driver who's still luckily paying attention, like slams on the brakes and, you know, says, oh my, oh my gosh, the Tesla is going to run into me or something. I don't remember the exact dialogue, but you get the idea. The Tesla was basically going to run into the person carrying a stop sign. Well, that's surprising in a certain sense and not in another. So it would be surprising if you thought that with all that training data, you know, Tesla has, I don't know, 100 million miles of training data or whatever it is, you'd think they must have data on people, and of course they do, and you think they must have data on stop signs, and of course they do. And so if you were naive and didn't really know how this stuff works, you'd say, well, okay, if they know what stop signs are and know what people are, of course they're gonna stop with a person carrying a stop sign, they should stop doubly so, right? But if you understand how they actually work, what they're really doing is like memorizing little configurations of pixels in a system that doesn't really understand what a sign is, what geometry is, doesn't understand that a person is a non-rigid entity, like it doesn't, none of squat. And so you put those in a novel combination and it's just a new set of pixels. It doesn't know. It doesn't say, hmm, I wonder why that person's carrying the stop sign, right? And, you know, after I first posted that one on YouTube. I had a version of that. I live in British Columbia and I was driving along and sure enough, there was a you know construction worker maybe wearing a different outfit and holding maybe a different kind of stop sign. And I managed to figure it out and I didn't run into them. Um, my car doesn't have any driverless uh, capabilities. And, and it was no sweat for me because as a human, I have this fund of general knowledge about what people are and what signs are and the intentions of signs. And you know maybe not everybody would articulate it in my cognitive science way, but everybody actually knows that stuff. They yeah. know what street signs are for, and they understand that traffic safety workers are there to protect themselves and us and you know other workers. And so like, it's no sweat to put all those concepts together. But if you live in a pure data regime, which is basically where these systems are, you don't have those underlying concepts. And so then it's a matter of, do I have this exact image in my database or something really close to it? 
and turns out no then then the thing runs into something and yeah. then the example i just gave of the jet is the same way like you know human has a general knowledge about what a jet is and i've never had opportunity to drive a car near a jet but i'm pretty sure if i saw one i'd be like that's expensive i don't want to run into it and someone summoned their tesla and it ran straight into it because it wasn't didn't happen to me in the data set and although in principle tesla could feed in everything about wikipedia for example and there's lots of pictures of jets in there um you know the knowledge is there it's not like nobody in the world has put the knowledge that one could integrate out there in the web it's there for the picking but nobody knows how to pick it um, except in these shallow ways, and they can't actually integrate it. I mean, I, I really like this example, and I think it's illustrative of the person carrying the stop sign because every pixel in that quote-unquote image should be telling the car to stop, right? The stop sign should be telling the car to stop. Every fiber person, of its being, but it right. has no being. Right. The, 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 the person pixels should be telling the car to stop. The stop sign pixels should be telling the car to stop. But what you're pointing out is that the configuration is neither the stop sign nor the person. It's some new thing that Yeah, and don't forget that the rest of that configuration is like road. Right. And so all the road part is kind of a signal like drive. Keep going. Right. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the AI hype cycle, which we've sort of danced around, um, you know, in this conversation. And uh, the fundamental shift in the structure of AI research and sort of the, the combination of these two things. So AI research used to happen exclusively in academia, you know, where it was subject to peer review. And today it happens increasingly and overwhelmingly in private companies. Um, so what are the implications of this shift for the reliability of the AI that's being produced, the transparency with which you know we can examine what's being done, and how is that related to the to the hype surrounding AI? So you had the mild mannered me, and now I'm going to be like the incredible Hulk. <laughs> um, I mean, this stuff really, really upsets me. So, um, starting a few years ago, um, companies like OpenAI started really leaning hard on their press releases. Um, the first time I remember being particularly upset about this is that GPT-3, the paper itself that they published was actually okay. And I didn't comment on it, even though I'm known, or maybe mildly comment on it, even though I'm known for being critical of some AI work. But it just kind of blew up and they kept like kind of putting out press releases about it, whatever. And so I asked if I could use it and they wouldn't let me. And I was shocked by that. Um, you know, I was trained as a scientist. I was an NYU professor for 20 some years. And, and um, you just don't do that in science. Like if somebody asks you, can I see the model? Can I try it out? You let them like, it, it still boggles my mind and they wouldn't let me. And I wrote to them and I asked them, you know, cause I thought, well, maybe they for, you know, I like, I applied to the waiting list and whatever and didn't hear from them. I was like, you know, I know Greg Bachman. So I wrote to him, he's the CTO. And he wrote back this note. Um, I learned a term called grin fucking um, in which he basically grin fucked me. Um, if you'll pardon my language and said, um, I, I posted this somewhere so you can see it. I think it's in my first reply to Slate Start Codex a couple a week or so ago. Um, he says, well, we have this long waiting list, but of course it's important um, to have critics like you. And we'll make sure you get it. Never heard from him again. Um, two years later, they finally made, or 18 months later, they finally made it available to everybody. But they run the table with the PR without letting people like me look at it. And then Dolly was the same thing. They They... They had this massive press release. It was very cleverly designed to make it sound like more than it really was. So 
there were a few different things. One was that um, the CEO, Sam Altman, posted about Dolly, which does these great image things. And then 45 minutes later, posted a tweet saying, AGI is going to be wild, um, implying um, there's a lot of invited inference, as you know, in marketing of all sorts, implying that this had something to do with AGI which I don't think it has anything at all to do with AGI. And then there was an interview with, I don't remember, Scientific American or Wired or TechCrunch, one, one of the big journals. I, I've given the quote somewhere in one of my recent articles by one of the lead um, developers of the system also you know, saying, you know, what we're trying to do at, at OpenAI is to, to build artificial general intelligence. And we see this as a step towards that. And you know, that's a big claim. Someone like me really ought to be able to vet it. Um, in this case, Again, they didn't give access. I asked them for it, but I was able to get access. I'm always able to get access in some way because I go out on Twitter and like somebody will give me underground access. Or in this case, I was talking to Scott Aronson anyway, and he had access and he was kind enough to let uh, me and Ernie Davis collaborate with him. So in, th in that case, I did actually get access. GPT took me a long time. And in both cases, I only got a limited bit of access like you know someone busy and smart like scott aronson says i'll work with you on a little project you know we gave him 15 sentences to test we're not going to give him 10,000 test you know sentences to do by hand and so i still couldn't do the systematic work that i would like to do for either of, of the systems um and so you have these like pronouncements and then the other thing opening i did is they tweeted positive examples of the system working um, but you didn't know, I mean, this is what we call cherry picking. If you see the positive example, but you don't see the negative examples. So Altman stood there, so to speak, on his Twitter soapbox saying, send me um, some words and I'll send you an image. But of course he can screen that and send the ones that he thinks are cute and not the ones that he doesn't. I don't know the degree to which he did that, but if I can't know that degree, then that's not science. And then a week later, um, Palm came out, which is a Google production. And they kind of did the same thing. They had this thing in the paper about how it could understand jokes, but they gave you four positive examples and no idea what they tested. So mm -hmm. the numerator and not a denominator that is so far from anything anybody learned, even in like 10th grade science, it's, it's almost unfathomable to me. Um, and yet that's how things roll. And then I asked them for more detail and they didn't give it. And then there was another one, Imogen. And there's some notion that it does better there's a problem Dolly has with it doesn't reproduce text very well. So you say, do me a cover of the hype machine. And it comes out, you know, te hippie motion or whatever. Like it's bizarre. And there's a claim that Imogen is better. So I tweeted to the lead author. I said, you know, can I try it with phrases that are less common than the ones that you use, which did not include, by the way, the hype machine, which we should try. Chitwin, if you're listening, please do the hype machine. I'd like to know. Um, they did like Google and okay, like that's in a lot of training examples and no offense to the hype machine, but it's not as in as many, you know, data examples, nor as rebooting AI, um, as, as Google is. And right. So they showed it works with Google, but you always want to know about the outliers and the low, lower frequency statistical things and so forth. Got no answer on that. Um, and so this is just how things have been rolling, especially this year. So um, what do you think, what do you think are the motivations Right, because so much money. Well, yeah, well, not, but so, but for me, if I'm Google, I want to build systems, or not. I don't want to pick on Google. I don't want to pick on anybody. But let's just say, AI company X, Y, and Z wants to build systems that work. Wants to build systems that work in as many scenarios as possible. 
it's the transparent, open, reviewable model that gets you there. And yes, I get some hype in the short run by keeping things closed, by not giving access to outside experts to kick the tires and so on, not peer-reviewed research. I get some benefit from that. But in the long run, that's not a way to produce a a scalable, robust model that doesn't fall down under. What's the last company you saw that really cares about the long run? So so first, you know, snide remark. That was first of first of a series of snide remarks. So that's one. Um, Two is it has not worked out poorly by and large for Tesla to promise self-driving that it is not thus far delivered. I mean, it's hard. I'm not a stock person. You should not take my advice and go shorting Tesla or whatever. I'm not telling you to do that. But the fact that it's trading at 100 to 1 price earnings suggests that it is not being interpreted as a car company, but as an AI company. Tesla has been promising since 2015 self-driving cars that it has not delivered. I mean, you can argue that they have some level two self-driving, which is to say driver assist, like cruise control, but better. Um, but they do not have anything that can go from point A to point B in a reliable way. Witness the summoning that ran into a jet just the other day, which was an actual very modest attempt at level four self-driving um, and didn't go so well. Um, but, you know, so the hype, I think, has has done Tesla, served Tesla pretty well in the short term. In the long term, it may all collapse and it may, you know, turn out to be the Enron of history or something like that. But for, for so far, you know, that's just speculation. Um, if you're Google, you have spent a lot of money on AI. In reality, what you have to show for it is somewhat better search, which nobody notices. It is actually getting better. Um, and then you have things like Lambda and you have you know, a VP going around saying, it sounds to me like we've made some progress on intelligence here. I'm not seeing the progress that, that Arquez, uh, Gara Arquez is seeing. But I do think it serves Google's narrative. I mean, Sundar goes out and pitches this stuff all the time. I'll give you another example. Is Google Duplex. Do you remember that? Yep. Google Duplex was supposed to make all your phone calls for you, which would be pretty awesome. And that was announced uh, 17, I think, or 18, 2017 or 18. Um, Ernie Davis and I made fun of it in the New York Times, a piece called The Trouble with AI, maybe. I can't remember. Um, And we made fun of it as we said, you know, it's promising all these things, but if you look at the fine print, it only works for calls to hairdressers, restaurants, and like one other thing. So you're like, you know, this is not the general intelligence that you droids are looking for. So that's what we said in, in 17 or 18. So I did looked it up the other day and now it does like hairdressers. They added movie times, but like, we're still like, this is not general AI. And so like Sundar, you know, went on, I think it was Google IO and, you know, huge crowd, all the world's media was there, showed this badass demo that, you know, made it sound like a human being because it would call and it would do ums and ahs. So, you know, I'm calling Sinan's house, house of sushi and, and it, it says, hi, um, I'd like to know when you're um, open. And like, it sounds like a person. It's great. But, you know, the problem is you answering your, you're like, uh, hold on a second. There's no idea. You know, it's already lost. Yeah. You know, I'll get to the phone in a second. I got another customer. It's already. Mm. I, I mean, I'm speculating on the details. I don't know, if, you know, literally for sure that that's where it breaks. But, um, you know, it's four years later and it's not just any four years later. It's the four years of the Transformer revolution, which started at Google. It's actually five years since Transformers came out um, this week. And, you know, we have systems that have six orders of magnitude more data or something like that. Six orders of data more I mean, orders of magnitude more compute, six orders of 
You know what I meant. Um, so we, and you know, we've learned something about how to make the transformers work more efficiently. All that extra technology that Google totally has in spades. They totally have the compute to do anything that they want, right? They have the intellectual resource to do anything they want. And they still can't get Google duplex that do more than movies with all of that innovation. What well, does that tell you? That tells you that they are not holding the hand that they want you to believe they are holding. Well, I think it's I think it's uh, it's interesting because I have also read and and you know you you uh, alluded to this earlier your your Twitter critics your LinkedIn critics so I I have you know read and you've been criticized as somewhat of a naysayer by the sure. deep learning enthusiasts yeah um, but I think you've had a reasonable response in my opinion. Uh, you wrote, and I love this actually, you said, despite all the problems I've sketched, I don't think that we need to abandon deep learning. Rather, we need to reconceptualize it, not as a universal solvent, but simply as one tool among many, a power screwdriver in a world in which we also need hammers, wrenches, and pliers, not to mention chisels and drills, logic probes, and oscilloscopes. Oscilloscopes, that's right. I wrote that in around January 1st, 2018. I think I published it a day or two later. Um, the first thing to note about it is that people like to straw man me as hating deep learning mm. and as if I want to abolish it. Like I'm not a deep learning abolitionist. I'm not sure I like that metaphor, but I I'm not calling for getting rid of deep learning at all. I'm saying we need a bunch of other tools. Um, and yet, like it's uh, Jan LeCun wrote that that paper was mostly harmless. Your, your former colleague, Eric Brynjolfsson, when that paper came out, said, this is a really interesting paper. People should look at it. And three seconds later, LeCun was in there saying it's mostly wrong. And then the Twitter mob was unleashed upon me. And, you know, um, and only last week did LeCun realize that, that I was actually calling for deep learning to be part of the larger puzzle. He only read the title, which is Deep Learning, a Critical Appraisal, and he went on the attack did the same thing with my recent paper, Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall, and we could talk about that title. Um, but people keep strawmanning me as saying that we shouldn't use deep learning at all, whereas that middle path, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, is precisely one that uses deep learning and some other stuff. That is what the middle path is, is to figure out how we can take a happy harmony of a bunch of tools to solve, solve problems that are really complicated. So if you think about cognition itself, there's a quote I like to take from Chaz Firestone and Brian Scholl, which is basically... I'll, I'll paraphrase it, is, is a cognition is not one problem, but many. So th there's many different things you do in cognition from like figuring out like what's inside of a cup and what's the chance that if I tilt it, it's going to spill to understanding, you know, an email to having a conversation to driving a car and deciding that this unexpected thing is dangerous or I shouldn't hit it for its own sake. Like there's just so many things that go into cognitioning. You're going to tell me that with this one magic equation and a bucket full of data, you're going to solve them all. It's ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but I, I actually think that this, uh, this sort of back and forth uh, provocation is really, really useful and helpful. I, I wish that it was a little bit uh, less knee jerk and more sort of thought out a little bit on both sides. But, but uh, let me take you, cause you were, you were talking about Tesla and, and you were, uh, you know, prefacing that you're not giving stock advice, which I very much appreciate. But uh, talking about Elon Musk, he's predicted that we'll have artificial general intelligence by 2029. And you've recently proposed to bet Elon Musk and subsequently also Jeff Hinton, uh, what became, uh, you started with 100,000, now it's become half a million dollars on whether AI on the current path would be able to do a majority of five things 
and I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll ask you to comment. Watch a movie and tell you what's going on. Read a novel and answer questions about the plot, character, conflicts, and motivation. Cook in a reasonable average kitchen. Code more than 10,000 lines bug-free. And convert proofs from natural language and math uh, to symbolic form suitable for verification. So why will AI on its current path not be able to solve these problems by 2029? So they're really hard. Let me just insert. Um, the bet, the cache, the original cache was mine. The essay in Substack was mine. The five, it's really six criteria, um, the five things plus the do three or more of them um, were devised with Ernie Davis, who, who was my co-author in Rebooting AI. Um, and, you know, we picked things that we thought would be hard, but not completely crazy. I mean, so we could have said, like, you know, we'll invent a new, you know, new way of propelling us between here and Mars or whatever. Like, I mean, we've tried to be reasonable in some sense. Yeah, these, um, are, these aren't these aren't uh, moonshots by any stretch. You no, know, as I put it in the article, they were organized in order of difficulty. So. Um, you know, everybody can watch, you know, a Hollywood movie and know what's going on. Okay. James Bond, you know, he's going to need to, you know, get in that vehicle and turn on this switch and like everybody watching the movie can, can play along. And most people can read novels, no sweat, at least, you know, at least, you know, 10th grade novels with no problem. Right. So those are not too hard. The restaurant one, or I mean, the, the cooking one was actually a nod to Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. Um, he has a, a version um, he calls the coffee cup challenge, which is like go to anybody's kitchen and be able to make coffee in their kitchen. Mm. So there's just a, a different version of that. And most people could do that, right? I don't drink coffee, so I might fail. Maybe I'm not human. Um, <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, the, the stuff about programming is not every day, but it's not, you know, it's not a crazy hard thing to ask for, given that the field is doing a lot of program synthesis right now, but it's also kind of a reminder of the difference between the programming stuff that has been advertised this year, which we could talk about if you'd like, and the reality of like what a real programmer needs to do. So the, the stuff that's out there is mostly like little code snippets, but what a real programmer does, part of what they do is conceptualization. So yes, they write some lines of code, but they're also figuring out how like all the structure is going to go together. And so we're pushing on that. And then the last one is about math. And there's been some work like this, but again, we think there's like this huge gulf between what's been done this year and, you know, what the ultimate realization of that might be. And so that, that's how we made the criteria. So, do you think, so is your prediction that current path, no artificial general intelligence, never? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I think. No, I mean, I mean, if we, if we just do Deep learning neural networks. We don't do a hybrid approach. Oh, oh on the current path. If we it, stuck stubbornly to the current yes. path, I don't think it gets us to artificial general ever. Ever. I don't think that no. we will. I mean, there's already right. people playing around with other things. Right. Um, a historical parallel I like to think of is, um, you know, Mendel figured out that there were genes, but didn't know the molecular basis. And people spent 30 years guessing wrong. Right. A lot of scientists guessed wrong and thought that genes were proteins and didn't think this, you know, weird acid had anything to do with it. And you know, they were wrong. And somebody won a Nobel Prize being wrong. Right. The 1946 Nobel Prize was for figuring out the protein structure of a virus, but only that was just wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people make mistakes, but science at least is self-correcting. We could argue about whether engineering is. Um, but there's a kind of scientific component to all of this. And if this stuff, 
fails, maybe people won't notice because I say it, but eventually they will notice it. And eventually, you know, they keep adding three more orders of magnitude data and the returns are diminishing. At some point, people are going to realize this is just not getting us where we thought, right? It might come from economics. It might come from a whole lot of people think um, they're going to get driverless cars and those cars just never come, right? And we just don't get the level five driving even after $100 billion has been invested in the infinite amount of data. Something is eventually going to change things. Or maybe it's because someone right now is, you know, already people are playing around with adding external memory, which is actually a step towards neurosymbolic AI. Maybe they get a good result out of it. Or maybe they notice the AI21 results that I think are kind of cool. They're not perfect, but they're interesting. Something will impel the field to get off this path because it's not the right path. So, so let's say that we went as hard at, uh, on the hybrid neurosymbolic path today as we are on the deep learning path today. Yeah. Uh, when do we achieve AGI? AGI? Uh, when does AI solve these five tasks? Or you know what? These five tasks are not AGI. When do we achieve AGI if we go hard on the hybrid approach starting today? And when do we solve these five tasks, which obviously are, comes before AGI? I think, first of all, that it's not just the neurosymbolic path. So, or the things that are on that path are not just putting the symbols together with the neural nets, but also having large scale knowledge database structures and um, being able to do reasoning. So there's a whole bunch of problems that need to be solved, but they're all kind of on a path. Um, if we really went hard into it, maybe, you know, Elon could win the bet with me. Like, you know, it's seven years. 2029, really? If, if we if went seven hard, years, if yeah, we okay. really like reorient, we have so many horses, so to speak, right now. If we really reoriented them there, I don't think we will, you know. But in principle, like if we took that level of effort, investment, dollars, got people to work on those problems, you know, seven years or 15 or something like that, like I think it could be done. I think a lot of it is just like we're leaning the wrong way and we're so hard leaned the wrong way that it, it's challenging. I, I like to use, um, partly because it's popular in the neural network field itself, the, the metaphor of a local maximum. So like, let's say you got to get to the highest peak in the Himalayas, but you just wander off at random. Like after a week, you're like, wow, I'm on the top of a mountain. And if you really look up, you're like, there's some much taller mountains. I'm mm. going to go back down the valley. And boy, does that suck. And so people don't want to go back down the valley. And so they explore the mountain that they're on. Um, and you know, when there's a billion dollars or $5 billion working on tax task X, and you've got another idea that maybe is actually the better idea, but you only have a million dollars to support your idea. That's hard. It's, it's hard that, to beat the better capitalized thing. Um, I mean, but, but do you think that just, just to, to pause on that point, do you think that um, narrow AI solutions are just more profitable that they solve specific things that you can turn into profit faster than you could profit from general artificial general intelligence yeah it's a slightly different problem than what i'm talking about um so let's let's just differentiate them one is the local maximum problem where whatever is best funded is going to tend to get more funding because it's better funded and and yep. it's hard to compete with um so that was the problem that i was referring to yep and sorry, the problem you were referring to. The, part, the problem I'm referring to is that it's easier to turn solution oh, right, right. Narrow, narrow AI into yeah. profit than it is and to turn so historically that has been that has been true too. So historically, narrow AI has always built beat general AI, partly because general AI doesn't exist, 
mm-hmm. and partly because there's always a bunch of things in narrow AI, little tricks that you can use and stuff like that. Um, and the, the $64 trillion question, and I think that's probably about the right number, is, is there going to be a transition point, a phase shift there, where at some point somebody builds a general AI that can teach itself to do all the things that the narrow AIs do. And that becomes so valuable because it can do all of those problems better. It's much better on the outlier cases that it actually basically takes the economy. So it's worth an immense amount of money. And- that, uh, yeah, that, that, that links those two problems of the local optima and the economics of narrow versus broad right. AI. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, so I want to talk about misinformation. And then I want to I want to ask sort of two closing questions uh, okay. about sort of the 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 ideal and and doomsday sort of scenarios. But let's start with misinformation. This is something that uh, you've been uh, working on recently. Um, tell tell us about the the problem of misinformation from the perspective of using artificial intelligence to solve it. So we know that. Um, or, or learning models in some way to solve it. We know that uh, a lot of uh, time, effort, and money are spent in companies like Meta to solve the misinformation problem using machines, using pattern recognition, um, and that there's just way too much content in the world to moderate by hand, human hand, uh, all of the content on, on Meta and Facebook and in the news feeds. So... Where does the current approach, and again, we can't see behind the curtain to know exactly what's going on inside Meta in terms of misinformation detection, but what do you think, what, are you, what, are, what is your view of uh, the problems associated with trying to solve the misinformation problem with current uh, approaches and, and what might be alternative approaches that might do better at finding misinformation? So it's, it's actually similar to the sentience problem. The issue is that these systems don't have a model of the world of what's truth. And you can have similar uh, discussions like we did about ethics. So what is the ground truth? But you know, let's say that, again, there's always a slippery slope of cases. You don't know exactly what happened on Tuesday in this particular spot. Um, but you do know, I mean, let's say we're talking about January 6th. We do know a lot of people went in there. Like there are some facts that everybody agrees on. You could argue about like what order they went in and you could look at evidence, but you know, there's an enormous amount of facts that we actually don't disagree about, right? So let us say we have access to them from some database. Um, a system like GPT-3 just can't actually really do anything with that database. Like it can memorize stuff, but um, it can't really reason about them. The, the example I gave you about um, who's president right now kind of illustrates that. So um it will, for example, just take the most common thing in your database. And one thing that's really important about knowledge in the world is that new facts supplant old facts. So if I asked you on February 1st, has Russia invaded the Ukraine? You'd have to say, well, I don't know for sure. There's been a lot of talk about it, but I don't think it's happened. It's not documented. If I asked you at the end of February, you'd have to say, yes, it's well-documented fact, right? Um, and so a system that's going to do fact checking, which is kind of what misinformation is doing at some level or misinformation detection is doing at some level, um, needs to deal with a dynamically changing world. And that's just not really what systems like GPT-3 are built to do. They don't look at symbolically represented facts. X happened on Y date. So they can't do causal reasoning or temporal reasoning. Um, another favorite example of mine of misinformation 
is um, a picture of Joe Biden on a plane without a mask that circulated during the election. And the picture was taken in 2019 before the COVID pandemic. And the invited inference was he talks about masks, but he doesn't wear them when the camera's not there, which is silly since it was a photograph. But anyway, um, so, you know, that's an example where you want to be able to do temporal reasoning. This bit of information that is being emphasized in this post was only, you know, true at a certain time window. So you have to reason about the timing of something. You can't do that in a system like GPT-3. So again, it points to that middle road. You still need to accumulate a lot of facts from data as machine learning is trying to do, but you need to reason over those in a symbolic way. You have to be able to say, you know, event, the temporal boundaries of event A or social movement B or whatever are such and such. And did this happen in that time where people imply a causal connection? You're like, well, okay, but this thing happened 10 years ago, probably not actually the causal, um, you know, nexus behind this other thing. And people are implying that, um, you know, that A is causing B, but they're 10 years apart. It's probably not causal, um, which is kind of causal temporal reasoning. Um, to do that, you need to do the kinds of things that symbolic reasoners are built for. Um, even the ones we have now are not good enough. It's not like this is all, you know, two minutes away from being solved. It was really, really hard problems, but you can't get into the game unless you represent symbolic information about who did what to whom when, for example, like if you don't represent that then you're just doing pattern recognition and you're recognizing the pattern. Trump is president only to, you know, as of a certain day, it's not true anymore. And so like, you have to retrain your model and ignore all the past. It's just not the right tool for the job. Mm -hmm. So we need better tools for that job. And you didn't mention like, you know, probably because all your listeners already know this and you've already had some amazing guests, um, but just how important this problem is. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it runs through, you know, almost every aspect of modern society. Um, these massive misinformation campaigns. And I'll just add one other thing, since I'm sure your, your audience already knows that piece of it, which is GPT-3 is actually making the problem worse because it can take a sentence, right. create and generate 3,000 riffs on it. And so, you know, in the old days, at least like there might be one form of your lie and you could go looking for copies of that. But now there might, you know, the lie in an hour can be transmuted into, you know, 3,000 versions and it makes the detection that much harder. So we're already kind of getting into this, but so I, I kind of want you to uh, put on your, um, I don't know who, Steve, Stephen King hat for a second. So there have been many doomsday scenarios printed about AI. What do you think are the biggest risks to humanity in creating artificial general intelligence? I mean, I, I well, I'll reframe the question slightly differently and sort of get to your piece. So I think the biggest risk right now to humanity is that we will put more and more power in these systems that are not artificial general intelligences and are not reliable. So, you know, when a technology comes along, people want to use it. There are people that want to sprinkle large language models everywhere. I heard a rumor someone wanted to use them to coordinate the discussions of driverless cars with one another. That's a catastrophically bad idea. We haven't totally emphasized the reliability problems here. It's been implicit throughout the conversation, but they're hugely unreliable. You do not want these things to coordinate, you know, cars. People will die. And so there are a lot of risks around taking technologies that aren't reliable and scaling them up. And so we have that with the bias problems and, and safety problems and misinformation problems. And so, you know, my immediate concern is not like, are robots going to take over the world, which they certainly are not going to do now. 
Um, but are we going to use the tools that we have wisely? And my bet is no, and that there are going to be you know, some serious costs from that. Mm. Um, Fatalities now, from driverless cars, propagation of misinformation, power false, grids, false diagnoses of in medical in the medical field, and so on. Right? Yeah, many many things. Um, and you know, also all the discriminations around loans and that kind of right. stuff that we've mm-hmm. been encountering. Lots of facets to that. Um, to some extent, a lot of that is happening today. A lot of it's happening today. The misinformation one in particular is going to get a lot, a lot worse. Um, so, you know, I'm, I try to balance between sort of short-term and long-term thinking. Um, short-term, we have a lot of serious problems right now with AI that's here. I sometimes say that AI might be at its worst time in history right now. Before we didn't really use it, so it wasn't really a problem. Mm. And if we work it out, maybe it could actually be more of a force for good. But right now, we have polarization from newsfeed and stuff like that and YouTube, which is a very serious problem. Um, it's led, in my view, to the rise of fascism. It led, in my view, um, to uh, COVID being a much worse problem than it should have been because of misinformation around COVID. And these are really serious problems we have right now. And it's at least possible to imagine a better future. And so we might actually be at like the time in which AI is most like a bull in a China shop. It's like kind of cool. We never had a bull in our China shop before, but you know, it's got some serious problems too. Um, Now, in terms of the robots taking over the world, anytime soon, I don't see that as plausible. So we have this riff in the book about if a robot comes for you, here are some things you can do. Number one, close the door. And, you know, we go from there, you know, climb a tree. Um, Robots can't open doors. They can't certainly can't unlock doors. Um, They can't climb trees. You know, robots today are very dumb and limited. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, I'm not that worried about them. Um, It could change. Like, if you want me to make a 10,000 year projection, I'm not going to do that. I'm a scientist. I know where we were in 1800. We didn't imagine cell phones. We didn't imagine social networks. We didn't imagine video calling. You know, who knows where we'll be in 10,000 years? Mm-hmm. But right now, the the biggest harm of AGI would, I think, be um, people putting it to bad use. So, like people manipulating the stock market in ways that cause harm and stuff like that, which might happen. Um, and I, you know, have some concerns around that. I'm not that worried about, in particular, the robots like being nefarious. Like that's not their bag, so to speak. You know, like think about the progress in Go. When I was in grad school, no Go machine alive could beat me, and I was not a very good player. I was, you know, casual amateur. Um, and now I couldn't beat any any Go. You know, probably you can get something on your phone that will crush me in Go. Um, and Go is a game of territory, which is why I like this example. You know, it's about seizing and controlling territory. But in all of that progress in Go, where there really has been exponentials, lots of aspects of AI have not grown exponentially, but Go really has. So with all that exponential progress, there has still been no interest on the part of the machine to take any territory in the real world. It could care less. It doesn't even know that the game is played on physical stones in a physical world under ordinary circumstances. Um, you know, so, so like, I, I'm not sweating the part where they all you know become skynet like yeah you know ten thousand years from now all bets are off and whatever but it's it's not our pressing concern i do think it's good that society spends some money on it trying Mm -hmm. to think about it there's probably more money on it right now that we need there's some 41 billion dollar institute or something studying this stuff i heard about the other day i don't know the details and that seems a bit you know silly when they're 
other problem, like if I had $41 billion, I'd put more of it on climate change and on AI to help us with climate change than I would yeah. on, you know, the so other. When, yeah. When we think about the flip side of that coin in an ideal world, you know, what does AGI look like in terms of the ideal scenario where it is built properly? We think about the ethics and so on. And now it's part of our world working. You know, what? how is our world different and better with AGI in it? I mean, I think the reason for doing AI and moving towards AGI is number one about um, technology and medicine. It's mm -hmm. that we might be able to do much better material science, might be able to do much better medical science. Um, like take medicine, for example, there's, let's say 7,000 medical articles published every day. It's something like that order of magnitude or maybe even worse. Um, so let's say there's 7,000 papers a day. Um, there's no way any one person can read them all, which means there's often morsels that get missed. I mean, like I try to read everything in AI, but I just don't, you know, like I, realistically, I read like five papers a week, mostly abstracts or something like that. And so there are probably things in neurosymbolic AI that I would love but then nobody in my Twitter stream retweets and I just miss and, you know, um, imagine a machine that could actually read. And I don't mean like text process, like find matching keywords um, or even pull out like little protein diagrams. I mean, like really read and understand like what was the methodology here? Should I believe this study? You know, what other conditions should we do next? All this kind of stuff. You know, good, good scientific judgment based on careful reading of papers. That would be worth so much. Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, climate change, um, for agriculture, like, you know, we'd be able to make food much more efficiently. Like that stuff is really game changing. There, there's this book abundance by Peter Diamandis that mm -hmm. I have somewhat mixed feelings about, but the happy scenario there is like, we use AI for the good. And like, I think that could happen. The current technologies are not up to that kind of good. Um, and I think are actually, if not net harmful kind of you know, a little bit of like, hey, you know, AI drives Google search, which helps people get information is positive, but it also drives um, polarization through newsfeed and stuff like that. And so it, it's, you know, it's more or less net zero right now, or I don't know the exact number, but it, it, it's not what you could imagine it to be where it would like revolutionize medical science, material science, et cetera. And that's why I think we should do it. Well, Gary, I want to thank you very much for spending uh, this time with us. It was a fascinating conversation, I think a really important conversation, uh, one that is rightfully getting the amount of attention that it deserves. And uh, we really appreciate your voice uh, in helping us think through deeply uh, what uh, AGI and AI and uh, current approaches to machine learning, deep learning, and symbolic systems means for humanity's future. So thanks so much for, uh, for spending the time with us. We appreciate it greatly. Fabulous conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gary. The Digital Insider with Sanan Aral is brought to you by the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Hosted by Sanan Aral, produced and edited by Carrie Reynolds. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share today's episode and tag us on social media at MIT underscore IDE. To leave a voicemail for Sanan for the chance to have your question answered live on air in a future episode, call 617-468-8423, or you can email MITDigitalInsider at gmail.com. Visit our website, ide.mit.edu slash podcast for more.